To know Christ is to be rich beyond measure, wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. There's rich and rich, isn't there? Rich little poor people and poor little rich people. When you think about Solomon, he was the richest man in the world. And it is said, none like him before or since. He'd seen it all, done it all, had it all, and above all, he'd known God in a way that few have experienced. And he walked before God in humility and integrity, but in his later years, he allowed himself to get tangled up with pleasure and things in this world and flew flat in the face of what God had told him not to do through Moses. In Deuteronomy, you can read that God told Moses to write it down in a scroll and give it to all the kings of Israel that would come. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. He must not acquire great number of women and wives for himself. And he must not accumulate large sums of money for himself. Three strikes and you're out, Solomon, except we live in the grace place. And God gave him another chance because, of course, God is a God of the second chance. And in his old age, he brought his heart to God, and God broke it. God, as it were, hammered some nails into the old tree trunk, and the tree began to produce fruit. I remember reading James Michener's account of what got him writing or kept him writing over the age of 80. He said, when I was 45, I was a farmer living at the end of our lane, hammered eight nails into an aging, unproductive apple tree. That autumn, a miracle happened. The tired old tree produced a bumper crop of juicy red apples. And when I asked how this had happened, the farmer explained, hammering in the rusty nails gave it a shock to remind it that it's its job to produce apples. In the 1980s, says Missioner, when I was nearly 80, I had some nails hammered into my trunk. Heart surgery, vertigo, a new left hip, and like a sensible tree, I resolved to resume bearing fruit, because that's what fruit trees do. Nails get driven in. They can cripple us, or they can jolt us into using our maturity and experience of life, however old we are, to make a significant difference. Well, what's this all about then? The book of Ecclesiastes. This is about aged wisdom, Lent the Spirit's intelligence, added to life's experience and God knowledge, walking down the stairway of the centuries into our world that is chasing the wind. Our world is not much different from Solomon's world. Let's read a little bit about it in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. He's telling us why he wrote this piece of priceless scripture. Chapter 2, verse 3, I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. So I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs. I brought 
Male and female slaves had other slaves who were born in my house. I also own more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. And that literally means a breast or two or three or four or a thousand in his case. The delights of the hearts of men. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Literally, I never said no to myself. Solomon, what you want, you can have it. To want it is to have it. To see it is to want it. To want it is to have to have it. To have it is to possess it. That was his lifestyle. Yet, verse 11, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Over in verse 17, so I hated life because the work that's done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is empty, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I toiled for under the sun. In other words, is this all there is? How could a man that knew God so well, how could a man who had been visited by God personally twice get into a lifestyle like this? Well, maybe as the Bible explains, he was a natural man who became a spiritual man but was living like a natural man. The Bible says all of us are born natural men, naturally selfish. Great big I right down our life, the personal pronoun. And then we hear about Christ, and we hear about that's not the way life should be, and that he came in order that he might now by his spirit invade our life and make a difference so that we can make a difference. And so we become spiritual people. Spiritual people are people that have the spirit, Christ's other self living in their hearts. So we were all natural. Some of us became spiritual, and yet some of us who were natural and became spiritual like Solomon are living like a natural person. That explains Solomon, and maybe it explains a lot of Christians you know. The Bible talks about living after the flesh, not after the spirit, keeping in step with the flesh. I never denied myself anything. Anything little me wants, little me shall have. And so Solomon fell into that trap like many of us do. God in his grace said, Solomon, I'm going to give you another chance. Somewhere along the line, he came back to God. Now, the devil wants us to know if we're searching for satisfaction, that this is where we get it. Satisfaction is here and now, he says. And the devil's been at this since Adam was a lad. Right back in the garden, he said, what you need is this apple. I'll help you climb the tree. We'll eat it together. And his lie is, get what you want and you'll want what you get. Not so. Get what you want, and you'll want what you'll get, and it will satisfy. Solomon knew better, but he fell for it. And he got this getting obsession. Not only getting obsession, but being obsession. Madison Avenue culture just feeds right into this. I was looking at an advert for Ralph Lauren's perfume. He used his daughter and her friends as an advert. In creating Ralph, he says, I was inspired by my daughter Dylan and her friends. This group of young women approach life with confidence, style, and complete optimism. Nothing wrong with that. 
The Ralph girl believes she can do anything. Nothing wrong with that. She has hopes, dreams, promises, and possibilities. Nothing wrong with that. This is what's wrong with this. And the power to make them happen. No. We cannot make our dreams come true. Time and chance happen to everyone. There's a time for this, and there's a time for that. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to dance, because we're living in a period called life after the fall with a sinful nature. So is life all about being a Ralph girl? They really want us to believe this perfume can change your life and make your dreams come true. Listen to me. You may go to your coffin smelling beautiful and with the smoothest skin. But what then? Ecclesiastes 11.7 says, The dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit to the God who sent it. And the spirit to the God who sent it. So we live in a society that's promising more than it can deliver. Stuart and I were at a swamp in Thailand. Well, we were at a camp on a swamp in Thailand. <laughs> and a missionary lent me some cutters, mosquito stuff. The mosquitoes were about as big as mice there. It was the middle of summer in Thailand on a swamp. So no mosquito nets. And so every night before we went to bed, I would spray Stuart all over and he would spray me all over. It didn't do any good whatsoever. And I thought, it promised, it promised. It says, makes you invisible to bugs. <laughs> no, it, it really doesn't, let me tell you that. So not only mosquito stuff, but other stuff promises more than it can deliver. Women promised him more than they could deliver. Thousands of them. It says in this book, if you read it all the way through, I couldn't find one woman worth anything among a thousand in the end. They promised me, but they didn't deliver. I couldn't only find one man among all the other men that I've had dealings with that was worth anything in the end. He was disappointed in people. Disappointed and disillusioned. And so he says, I tried cheering myself with wine. Oh, I did great things. I built houses. I planted vineyards, etc., etc. I amassed wealth. I acquired business. I assembled people. Listen to those words. Amassing wealth, acquiring businesses, assembling people. What's wrong with that? Nothing, says God, as long as you do it in relationship with him. So these things don't have you. You have these things and can use them as a good steward. It's so sad to find people who are disillusioned with life. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over and I never got what I wanted. Know anyone like that? I do. And I see adults throwing their toys out of the cot, having a fit. Because to want it was to get it. And the devil says, get what you want and you'll want what you'll get. And you find that's not so. And Lewis says, if you find within yourself a desire for something that pleasure and things and people cannot give you, the possibility is you are made for another world. You're made for another world, and so am I. 
And so is every human being born into this world. And the important thing is not what we get or what we leave, but what happens afterwards. Fear God, keep his commandments, because he's going to ask you what on earth were you doing? What on my earth were you doing? noticed everybody leaves everything behind I remember sitting with my in-laws in Kendall England and they always put in the paper people that die and what they leave so it's very interesting to read that piece of the paper and there was quite a wealthy lady that had died and so we went for the back of the paper where her will was published and uh, my mother-in-law called from the kitchen what did she leave my father-in-law answered everything Everything. That's what you leave. Your favorite automobile, your pet dog or cat, your holiday cottage, your fishing poles, your Green Bay tickets. Have you ever cleared out a relative's things that's died? I've done it four times. Did you ever say, oh, look at this. She left all this stuff. I knew she'd want to take this with her. (laughs) Of course not. You can't take it with you. I always remember my father dying, and he was a wealthy man, coming back and watching all the people that had been to his funeral drinking his drinks, which he hadn't been able to take with him, sitting in his beautiful home, his castle-like home, which he hadn't been able to take any of the furniture that he really loved to sit on with him. You can't take it with you. And you cannot enjoy the blessings of life, and these are blessings of life, things and the simple things in life without God. And the idea of gain, profit, surplus in itself producing joy in this book is non-existent. Who can enjoy anything, it says, apart from God? So we're searching for satisfaction and we're not having it and finding it. We're searching for significance. Do I matter? Who do I matter to? Does anybody care about me? I was talking to a widow the other day. She looked a mess. I said, how are you doing? How's it going two months after your husband's died? She said, well, I've just lost all interest in living and how I look. She said, nobody to look at me in the morning over the kitchen table. I said, I have to look at you. So do other people. You matter to other people. No, I don't. I'm nobody special anymore. And I want to matter. I I want to matter to someone. Let me tell you something from my heart. You matter to God. You matter so much, he's going to judge you and evaluate you because what you do matters to him. What you think matters to him. Every thought, whether it's good or it's bad or it's dirty or it's good or it's great, every single thing we think, every single thing we do is going to be judged. And that's a compliment. A child that's never disciplined, feels its actions have no consequence. doesn't matter what I do. I don't matter. God says, you matter. You matter so much. I care about everything you do in the brief, brief, brief time. Brief, brief, everything's brief. But I allow you to live. And yet this culture is a look good, feel good, instead of a do good, be good 
culture. And joy is found in doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God. Joy is found in getting down and dirty in the ditch with the man who's been beaten up by life as it is on this crazy planet. In binding up his wounds, putting him on your own donkey, taking him to a place of safety and looking after him till he heals and paying the innkeeper's bills. That's where joy is found. And Solomon, coming to his senses, his spiritual senses, looked around and saw that he had been negligent. He had not used his influence to make a significant difference. And there was injustice in the courts. There's something else meaningless I'm seeing that occurs on the earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve, wicked men getting what the righteous deserve. There was injustice in the courts. There was oppression all around. And there was violence in the streets. Terrible, terrible, terrible violence. I turned my attention to all the outrageous violence that takes place on this planet, he said. All the outrageous violence that takes place. And he says in Ecclesiastes 4.1, and you know what? I saw that power was on the side of the oppressor. It's so discouraging, he said. It's so awful what's happening in my society because I have been negligent with allowing God to use my life for good and for God while I'm here. And he had the power to do that. He had power over the courts. He had power over everything. He was supreme in his little kingdom. And what had he been doing? Listening to the devil. What was the devil doing? Get it and you'll want it. Want it. You'll be glad you got it. You're significant to me, says the devil. I want you to come home to my place. I want you to sleep over. I want to play with you now so I can play with you then. I want you to know that you're significant to God. You're significant to God. So significant, he came himself in Christ to save you. Do you know joy in your heart? Do you have life with a capital L? There will be fear one day, and justice too. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And there are some things we cannot understand until that day. Except in the context of we live in a period called life after the fall with a sinful nature. Remember, the front of this pulpit represents the timeline. Brief, brief, very, 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 very brief. Transcendently, tragically brief. And this is where God is. And he's saying, I'm going to give you one shot. I'm going to allow you, in my sovereign will, to be born in the West. To read. To be able to read. Incredible gift to be able to read and write and be educated, to have a roof over your head, to be talented and gifted above many, many societies in the world. For what? For me, he says. We're searching for significance. And we never say no to ourselves. And of course, we're never happy. Until we fear God, keep his commandments, that's the whole thing. That's the chief end. That's the reason. That's the meaning. That's the reason to live and to die. 
That's what gives you purpose. And this world that's chasing the wind is looking for satisfaction. And this world that's chasing the wind is looking for significance. And this world that is chasing the wind is looking for security. Ever since 9-11, I've heard people say, I want to go home. Well, certainly over 9-11, as I was holed up in Newfoundland with my 250 passengers off my plane where I got diverted, all I heard was, I want to go home. I want to go home every day for six days. I just want to go home. I want to talk to home. I want to do this. I want to go home. And I remember saying to a very beautiful young woman, I am home. Pardon? I am home. What do you mean you're home? thought you lived in Milwaukee. Well, I do, but I'm home. What do you mean? Home's the will of God for the child of God, I told her. Nothing can happen to me outside his will. Every day ordained for me is written in his book before one of them came to be, so I'm home. Perfectly happy to be here for as long as he wants me to be. In fact, I'm not safe anywhere else because you're only safe in the heart of the will of God if you're a child of God. I am home. She said, tell me about that. I said, I will. And I did. I want to go home. Now remember, God has put eternity in your heart and you want to go home. There's something in you that says there has to be something better. Or like Camus, you're saying life's a bad joke. That's what the ungodly says. That's what the person that doesn't know Christ says. Life's a bad joke. And for some of you, life's a bad joke at the moment. Life's a very bad joke. But when you know Christ, internal security depends on eternal security, whatever external security means to you at that moment. And that's why I could say to that, that girl, look at me. What do you see? Peace, right? <laughs> because I'm home. I'm relaxed. I'm where I should be. Nothing can happen to me outside the will of God. Tell me about that, she said. So people are looking for security. And you know what? We need to be ready to die. We need to be ready to die. Shortly after I had been to Newfoundland, a little break, came back and joined up with Stuart again, who'd been to India or somewhere, I don't know where, and we were flying to Washington, D.C. It was in the early days. There was no one else on the plane. We got off, suddenly met this camera. It was the evening news. And they were there trying to ask everybody off the plane, um, how did it go? Are people irritating you? How are they treating you as they search you? And so as they walked up to me, I heard the girl say to the camera crew, oh, there's an elderly couple who look really happy. I mean, they're laughing. So let's do them sort of thing. So they came and stuck this camera right in my face. And they said, you seem very relaxed. And I said, well, actually, I got stuck on 9-11 in Newfoundland. I told her that little experience. And I said, so everything after that seems a little tame. Oh, she said, there's a story here. So she beckons to the camera. And here I am looking straight into it. And she says, how is it? How is it you can be like this? And so I looked into the camera, and I smiled a great big smile. And I said, you have to be ready to die, you know. <laughs> and then I said, 
being ready to die and wanting to die are two different things. I don't want to die. I want to live because God's put eternity in my heart. I didn't tell her that. And I know I'm made to live forever. So I want to live. That's healthy. But you have to be ready to die. And so immediately she wanted to end the conversation. (laughs) However, the cameraman poked his head out. He was an African-American. He hadn't, he'd been behind the camera to that point. And all I saw was this big grin. (laughs) So I realized I had somebody on my side and he was saying, tell her, tell her. (laughs) And even though she was trying to finish this interview, he wouldn't let her. And he kept the camera rolling. I have no idea how much they showed on Washington Evening News or not. But you have to be ready to die. You have to be ready to die. I remember a time when I couldn't get in a plane without taking medication. I was so scared. And I remember Stuart saying to me, get your theology right, Jill. You get your theology right, you'll be all right. And I said, what do you mean? And he tried to tell me. You know, I'd be dead on time. (laughs) Because that's how it is, if you're a believer. After 9-11, we have lived on airplanes since. I just got my... 100,000 1K card this year. So I've had lots of practice seeing if I really believe what I'm telling you. And after 9-11, my husband gave me a little piece of poetry that he and I carry in our wallet every time we get on a plane. It was found on Rupert Brooks' body, a soldier in the Second World War, where he was found in the trenches when he was found dead. Rupert Brooks is one of our best poets. And this is what the little thing said that we carry with us. Safety. Safe shall be my going, secretly armed against all death's endeavors. Safe thou, all safety is lost, safe where men fall. And if these poor limbs die, safest of all true. I believe it. Now, in this book, Solomon tells us what the world says about death, and he tells us what God says about death, and what the believer says about death. And he says, the ungodly view is that death is a given, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And don't worry about the world, let it cry. Because you have such a brief time to enjoy all the pleasures. And death is grim. That's what the ungodly person says. Ignore it. Pretend it isn't happening. Deny it. So we dress it up in America as if it never happened. And the person in the coffin looks better than when they were alive. And so there's no reality about it here. And what's more, says the world, death is governable. What does science say? Let me quote, incredibly, he's supposed to be a very bright, intelligent man. Let me quote him. Death is an imposition on the human race and is no longer acceptable. Man has all but lost his ability to accommodate himself to personal extinction. He must now proceed to physically overcome it. In short, to kill death. To put an end to his own mortality as a consequence to being born. This is an intelligent man, yes, because 
If you're practicing Godmanship, selfship, then you can manage your own destiny. You are the ruler of the times and the seasons in your life, and sometimes everybody else's. But the godly view is death is not the consequence of being born. According to the revelation of God, it's the result of sin entering the human race. And God has the power of death, not man, nor will ever he have it. One day, a self-made man who worshipped his creator was having a conversation with God. God said, I can create a child, so can I, sneered the man. I can make a baby from a sperm and an egg and a test tube. God said, I can cause flocks and herds to multiply on the earth. I can clone a sheep and <laughs> a pig and a cow, the man said proudly. I cause the clouds to form, to gather rain, to bless the dry earth, says God. That's nothing, replied the man. I can lace the clouds with silver chloride, make it rain whenever I want to. Do you not know I have the power to explode a thousand universes, said God. Paltry trick, snapped the man. I've made a weapon of mass destruction. I can blow the human race to smithereens. And the man was getting excited. Watch this, he shouted. He pressed a button and missiles flew to their prearranged destinations and radiation killed every living thing. I can raise the dead, said God. Please, said the man, let me live again. Why? Who are you? Said God. He will bring every deed unto judgment. And he'll either say, I forgive you. I forgave you. I forgive you. Or... I forget you. Terrible thing to be forgotten. All over this country, I have people come up to me saying, do you remember me? It's a very embarrassing question. I remember faces, but I don't remember names. The delight when I say to them, yes, I do remember you. And that's just almost a stranger. Can you imagine what it would be like to hear, I forget you to be forgotten by God forever and ever and ever. So you've got to be ready to die. Death is a given, death is grim, but death is an evangelist. Better to go to the house of mourning, says this man. Better to go to the house of mourning than to a festival or a party. Now you have to understand there were no hospices there were no hospitals. There was no medicine as we know it today for the people in Solomon's time. Every house was a house of mourning. They lived in extended families. In every house, there would be somebody sick. In every house, there would be somebody dying. Better to go to the house where there is going to be mourning because man goes to his long home, he says in chapter 12. And mourners go around the streets. Little children grew up with that. They saw death up and close. And it wonderfully focused their attention. Wonderfully focused their attention. And we've talked about heartache and heart hunger and heart searches. But I want to tell you about a heart song that is the right of every believing Christian. And it happens when he makes everything beautiful. Beautiful. 
in its time. When I came back and realized from some trip that Carrie Wood, a childhood friend of our daughter's, was in her last week of life, 40 years of age, three children. I asked if I might come and visit her. I hardly wanted to go in the room because 20 odd years ago, I watched her mother die of the same cancer. And this particular daughter was most like her mother. I went in and she was agitated. She couldn't see anymore, she could hardly hear. And I put my hands on her and I said, rest now. Your work is done. No, no, she said. I, I've had so little time to tell all the people I want to tell about Christ. Oh, rest now, Kerry. Rest now. She wouldn't. And so I said to her, let me be your voice. I have a platform. What do you want to tell them? I'll tell them for you. And her eyes came open, whether she saw me or not, I don't know. And she said, Jill. Great big smile. Tell them it's all true. I said, I'll do it. And so I'm telling you, it's all true. I'm Kerry's voice. God has made everything beautiful in its time for her. And she's with him and with her mother. What's all true? There's a heaven to go to. There's a Christ to take you there and me there, you only have to ask. There's a heaven to go to, a Christ to take you, you only have to ask. Pray with me, if you will. And I'm going to invite those of you that have never, ever Asked Christ specifically to come into your life by his spirit. I'm going to give you that chance. Climb inside my prayer if you really want to do that. He wants you to. Lord God, here I sit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for all the things you know about, Noni, you know about. I'm just sorry. I'm sorry for my sin. God, I open my life, and you can do this, just do it now. I open my life, inviting your spirit to invade my heart, my soul, right now. God, I want to be ready to die, because getting ready to die makes me ready to live. In this brief time, you've given me on this earth. And I ask you that you would give me forgiveness, peace, that passes understanding, that just goes beyond anything I could imagine. I'm coming home, Lord. I'm coming home. And there are some of you here who are trees. Life has been hammering some nails into you. You need to resume bearing fruit. God is the God of the second chance. God wants you to know peace and joy and satisfaction and meaning and purpose for however many days he knows you have left on his earth. So why don't you come home too?
tell him I'm coming home. Home to the will of God for my life. Home to purpose and meaning, make a significant difference in my little circle of influence. The Bible says his spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are his children. God, would you do that in the hearts that have just opened up to you right now, I pray. For all those that have echoed that prayer, not half understanding it, not really know if they're really meaning it, and yet wanting, urging for a God who can be their Savior and their Lord and their friend. Confirm what they've done, Lord, by your Spirit. This is not man's work, this is God's. Thank you for this peace. Thank you for this sense of Godness in this sanctuary. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers and answering them in Jesus' name.